Pay attention, huh? Wow. Open your Bibles up to the fifth chapter, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. And as we are turning there, let us take a moment and ask for the Lord's enablement to hear his word. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you that we hold on our laps the the oracles of the living God, that we do not have to wonder what you are like and what you want of us, how we might know you personally, intimately, because you have revealed it all to us in the Scriptures. Our Father, may your Holy Spirit this morning help us to hear with hearts of faith. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Beloved, there are fundamentally two kinds of leaders in the world. Two kinds of leaders. There are those who lead from the front, and there are those who lead from the rear. Those who lead from the front say, follow me. Those who lead from the rear say, do as I tell you. Do as I tell you. Over these last, what is this, five weeks now, huh? As the last five weeks, we have demonstrated over and over again, I think, conclusively that a husband is called to be a leader, that a husband is called to be a leader in his marriage and in his home. So the question really before us is what kind of leader? What kind of leader will we be? Will we be one who leads from the front or one who leads from the rear? We're called in our leadership to emulate the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ's entire life and ministry is best characterized by that of servant leadership. Servant leadership. In other words, one who led from the front. One who led from the front. We're looking at characteristics of a husband's authority, and we said when we began five weeks ago that there were 14 of them that we could identify in this passage before us, 14 characteristics of a husband's authority, and we wanted to look at them so that we might understand them, appreciate them, and exercise them in a Christ-honoring fashion in our marriages and in our homes. We began with the first characteristic way back when, and that was that a husband's authority is unavoidable. The husband's authority is unavoidable. Following that, we looked at the covenantal nature of a husband's authority, that a husband's authority is covenantal. It is covenantal. In other words, it's, it, it is a result of the covenant of marriage. Third, we noted that a husband's authority is reflective, that it is reflective. In other words, that it is a reflection of Christ's authority. Fourth, we noted that a husband's authority is primary. It is primary. He is the initiator of the relationship. It is primary. Last week, we were challenged with the fifth characteristic, and that is that a husband's authority is loving that a husband's authority is loving. We've got a few that we're going to look at together this week. It begins here with number six, the sixth characteristic, and that is that a husband's authority is sacrificial. Okay? A husband's authority is sacrificial, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her and gave himself up for her. 
Now, wives make many, many, many sacrifices for their husbands and their children. There is no doubt about that. Many sacrifices. However, Christian wives are never explicitly called upon to do that as a result of their commitment to Christ. But husbands are. Husbands are called upon specifically, explicitly, to sacrifice in their love on behalf of their wives as a result of their new status as children of the living God. Now this command here, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, this command for total sacrifice on the part of a husband brings balance, really, if you think about it, to the sweeping nature of Paul's command just this verse earlier with regard to wives, where he says that they are to be subject to their husbands in everything. And we looked at that a few months ago, the the comprehensive nature of a wife's submission. This comprehensive nature of a wife's submission finds its, its balance, as it were, in the explicit command to a husband to, for the total sacrificial nature of his love for her. Both of these commands cannot be fulfilled absent the power of the Spirit of God in our lives. These are the result of the new life in Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit of God within us. And let us never in this series lose sight of that reality that this all flows out of verse 18 and the work of the Spirit in our lives. These are not commands to to just suck it up and try harder. These are commands based upon the reality that we are not who we once were. We are brand new creations in Jesus Christ. And because of the indwelling power of the Spirit of God, we have the ability to begin to live this new life out. Christ was a servant leader. Christ was a servant leader. And that means as husbands who are called to emulate him, we are called to the same kind of leadership, a servant leadership. A question that would naturally arise, I think, in this context is, what is a servant? If we are called, men, to a servant leadership, we need to ask the question fundamentally, what is a servant? What is a servant? Now, there are all kinds of potential definitions that we could, we could put together here from the Scriptures, but I'd like to boil it down simply to this. A servant is a person whose life is not their own. A servant is a person whose life is not their own. It is not their own. In other words, it is their duty as a servant to make other people's lives easier or better. Their lives as a servant are to live for someone else, for the benefit of someone else. We can see this illustrated, I think, very, very clearly in Luke's gospel, and I'll just turn you over there to Luke 17. Part of our problem is is that we don't live in a culture of servants and slaves, and so it's hard for us to understand some of these, these things. But what I want you to notice in Luke 17, just turning you there, verses 7 and 9, 7 through 9, rather, because Jesus makes a statement here about the life of a servant and then uses that to teach a, a spiritual lesson. And, and he uses what was a common understanding of his day. And that's all I'm looking for in this passage, is to just demonstrate that a servant is a person whose life is not their own. So Jesus says here in verse 7 of Luke 17, Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? In other words, 
Jesus says, the life of a slave, the life of a servant is to do what you are supposed to do, and that is to live for the benefit of someone else. There is duty involved here. There is duty involved. Go back to Ephesians 5. Back to Ephesians 5. Now, it's probably important to say at this point that the fact that a servant has duties or responsibilities rather than rights or privileges does not mean that they are not and cannot be motivated by love. Okay? So the fact that, that a servant is, is life is characterized by duty or characterized by responsibility does not mean simultaneously that they are not motivated by love. They are not mutually exclusive. And this is especially true of husbands. This is especially true of husbands. In fact, let your eyes just glance down to verses 28-29, where he says, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Paul, we'll come back to that here a little bit later, but, but Paul uses this universal truth that people naturally love, naturally care for themselves as a, as a motivator for here for husbands to, to naturally love and care for their wives. Understand that your wife is one flesh with you. She is your body, and you will naturally love your body. You will naturally love her. So, a life of duty and responsibility, men, is also simultaneously a love that it, or excuse me, a life that it, that expresses love. It's a natural thing. It's a natural thing. Think about the greatest servant of all. The greatest servant of all. The Lord Jesus Christ, right? Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. The, the greatest servant of all came out of love for the Father and for the church and gave himself up, gave up his rightful place in glory and came to, to serve, to assume the, the role of the servant. Why? In order to save and beautify his bride. Love motivated Christ to come and to serve. But he came and he served. And that's an important point. In fact, be reminded of it, Philippians chapter 2, where Paul speaks of this reality as a, as a motivation for the church here at Philippi to, to love and serve others. But I, but I want to just let these words kind of ring in your ears because I'm going to bridge from this to talk about as a husband, what does it mean to sacrificially love our wives? Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, he says, Do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ came to serve. And he came to serve out of love, love for the Father, love for the church, his bride. And men, we are called to, to emulate that kind of love, that kind of love. Now, as I was preparing this week for the message, uh, I was thinking about, okay, so how do we make this practical? And, and one approach could be to make a list of all kinds of, of potential duties, you know, for us to, to sacrifice for our wives. And I thought, you know, I don't want to do that. I really don't want to do that. And the, and the reason I don't want to do that is not because there aren't many, many practical ways for, that we can and should be sacrificing for our wives to, to demonstrate our love for them, but I'm afraid that I would miss something that would relate to you individually as you're out there. 
Because I, I don't know your circumstances, only you can know them in that way. And so what I want to do instead of listing duties is I want to, to instead cause us to just reflect a little bit. Just reflect a little bit on the implications of Jesus' servanthood as a model, gentlemen, for our own sacrificial love. So just to think about that. So let me ask a question, overarching question. Here it is. What have I given up? What have I given up or am I willing to give up in order to minister to and bless my wife? What have I given up or what am I willing to give up in order to bless and minister to my wife? I'm, I'm being called to the model of Christ, to love her sacrificially. So what sacrifice, basically? What sacrifice? Consider with me the various spheres of the marital relationship. And as we do, ask the Spirit, even now, right now, where you're sitting, ask the Spirit to help you think through these spheres and your involvement in them as a, as a servant, as a man whose life is characterized by responsibility and duty. So here they are. Spiritual growth in Christ within the home. The spiritual temperature of your home. Since we are one flesh, gentlemen, with our wives, since we are one flesh, our wives' spiritual health is a reflection of our spiritual health. In other words, if our wives are not spiritually healthy, growing in Christ, then we are not spiritually healthy and growing in Christ. We are inextricably related together, for it is very clear we are one flesh, one body. You can't be doing good if she's not doing good. How about the realm of family finances? What have I sacrificed? What am I willing to sacrifice for her in the realm of our finances as a family? The raising of children. The realm of the raising of children. What sacrifice have I made or am I willing to make with regard to the raising of children? The keeping of the home. The keeping of the home. Where are my sacrifices in that realm? Hospitality. Hospitality. What sacrifices have I made or am I willing to make in the realm of hospitality? Recreational activities within our marriage. Sacrifices in the realm of recreational activities. Romance and intimacy. Romance and intimacy. What sacrifices am I making or am I willing to make to love my wife in the, in the realm of romance and intimacy? These are just some of the major realms of the marriage relationship to think about in light of Philippians 2. Perhaps it would be good to sit down with your wife and, and ask her, how can I serve you in this area? How could I serve you? How can I minister to you in this particular area, honey? And hear what she says. Listen to what she says. Listen, guys, if we think something is beneath us, then we are probably thinking incorrectly about our leadership. If we think one or more of these realms is beneath us, then we are thinking incorrectly about leadership. A husband's authority is sacrificial. It is sacrificial. 
Seventh, number seven, a husband's authority is protective. A husband's authority is protective. Jesus says in John 15 and verse 13 that greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Well, certainly, if we are going to love our wives as Christ loved the church, then we must lay down our lives. It is a protective kind of love. Again, verse 25 in Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Gave himself up for her. Men are physically stronger than women, generally speaking. Men are physically stronger than women, women. And, and it is thus axiomatic that God has designed men to protect women in general and one man to protect a particular woman in, in particular. And that didn't come out very well. One man to protect one woman in particular, that's the way I want to say it. Okay? So all men, all women, generally, one man, one woman, specifically. Now, it's easily observed, is it not, from little boys at play, that men are hardwired to be protectors. They have a protector instinct. Your son will protect you, Mom, from any and all bad guys. Okay? It's just hardwired in. Culturally, this, this reality of how God has created men and women is enshrined in various behavioral codes of various civilizations over time. Certainly one of the more famous is of that of the medieval period, which is called the Code of Chivalry, right? The Code of Chivalry. It is nothing but the, the codification of a basic understanding, a Christian understanding of anthropology, of, of maleness and femaleness. Now, there are all kinds of cultural manifestations of the deeper truth, and unfortunately, our culture seems bent on, on discarding or, or discrediting or destroying as many of them as it can. But I am old and tenacious. And do not believe we should give up these things because they communicate something important. Therefore, men, open a door for a lady. Open the door for a lady. Open a car door for your wife. Open the car door for your wife. Is this law? No, it's not law. But the process of doing this will train you to think about her in a way you ought to, and it will train her to think about you in the way she ought to. Give up your seat for a woman. When you're on a crowded public transportation and an older person or a woman walks in, men, get up and give up your seat. This used to be common courtesy. It was well understood in our culture. Because why? Well, because it reflects a biblical anthropology. And now we discard it all. I trained all my girls. When you go out on a date, you sit in the car and you wait till he comes around and opens the door. Okay? He may get all the way into the restaurant before he figures out he's alone. Okay? But he'll be back. He'll be back. And if he doesn't, just take the car and take off. <laughs> okay. Just don't give this stuff up. All right. Admittedly, sadly, men have a very blemished track record when it comes to fulfilling their roles as protectors of women. There is no question about it. Across 
time and all cultures, there are numerous examples of exploitation. We cannot deny this reality, men. This is the, this is the consequence in, of the fall. It began with Adam. Go back to Genesis. Let me, let me show you this. Go back to Genesis chapter 2. Who was the first man to fail in his role to protect his wife? It was Adam. It's a consequence. Genesis 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Eve's not created yet. The command is given to Adam by God with regard to the, to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Right? It is Adam's responsibility as the protector of his wife to pass on that information and to, and to help her to, to, to live under that reality. And we move over to chapter 3. In verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. And reflecting upon the, the events of that tragic day over in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14, the Apostle Paul makes a, a statement here that is germane to what we are talking about. Where he says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 14 that it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman was deceived and fell into transgression. The woman was deceived and fell into transgression. Back in Genesis, in verse 6, where it says she gave to her husband with her and he ate, the, the preposition that is used there indicates not that they were standing shoulder to shoulder, but that Adam was in the general vicinity when this event took place. And he came not to her rescue. He came not to her rescue. She was deceived by the serpent, and her husband rescued her not, and then entered into her folly, knowingly and willfully plunging the human race into the tragedy of sin. And we've had a blemished track record ever since, guys. Even when God confronts them, right? Adam's response is, God says to Adam, what have you done? And his response is, it's the woman you gave me. It's the woman. Rather than protect her, he abandons her. But the reality of the matter is that in Christ, gentlemen, we are, we are to recover what was once lost. As Christian men possessed of the Spirit of God, we are, we are called upon to, to use our husbandly th uh, authority in ways that protect our wives and our families, not to take advantage of them. The authority we've been given is an authority to protect, not to take advantage. So, how? What are some ways as husbands that we are called upon to protect our wives. Let me suggest some for you, for your thoughts. We are called upon as husbands to protect our wives against our children, against their disrespectful attitudes, against their, their 
responses that are disrespectful. Against, God forbid, any threats or acts of violence on the part of our children towards their mothers. Their mother is your wife. You are one flesh. To disrespect your wife, when your children disrespect your wife, they are, they are disrespecting you. And you were called upon to protect your wife. Listen, there's a, there's a hierarchy of crimes in a home. And disrespecting mom is like right up there with capital punishment kind of thing. Okay? There's just no place for it. Do not allow your children to get away with disrespecting their mother. Okay? You are called to protect her. You are called to protect your wife against your in-laws or her in-laws and their intrusion into your marriage. Their intrusion by offering unsolicited opinions. By their potential disapproval, for example, of your wife. By even their unwarranted financial gifts. You were called upon to protect her in these matters. Okay? Do not entertain your in-laws criticisms of your wife, or when they criticize her, they are criticizing you. You are one flesh. You must protect her. You need to protect your wife against other people's expectations regarding her time or her energy or her priorities. I won't develop it, but you can go to Numbers chapter 30 and you can, you can see that laid out as the heart of God. You are called to protect your wife against false teachers. You are to be the Berean in your home. Acts 17, verse 11, right? The, the Bereans searched the Scriptures to see if these things were so. You are to be that front line of defense to, to protect your home theologically, protect your wife. You are to protect your wife against violent and dangerous people in society. How you go about doing that, there's all kinds of approaches and ways and scenarios and so forth, but, but you are called upon to ensure her physical safety. And you need to think about that. You are called upon to protect your wife from financial ruin or forcing her into the workplace because you have not prudently provided some kinds of reserves for your family for the unforeseen. You must protect her. And finally, you must protect her against the intrusion of your sin into your marriage. And you do that by dealing with it rather than ignoring it or covering it up or denying it. You must protect your wife. A husband's authority is protective. Now, most men would say that they would, they would be happy to die for their wife, right? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Of course I would die for my wife. Man, I'd go out in this blaze of glory, you know. They'd be coming at me from four directions, and, <laughs> and I'd be a hero. That's not going to happen. What's going to happen is you're going to call, be called upon over the next 50 to 60 years to make all kinds of decisions in all kinds of circumstances that will test whether you really are going to sacrificially and protectively love her or not. That's where the rubber meets the road. Okay? Sorry, all you amateur John Waynes. Okay? It's in the day-to-day -day stuff. It's in the day-to-day -day stuff that it's proved. Eight, eight, a husband's authority is life-giving. A husband's authority is life-giving. It is protective, seven. It is life-giving, eight. 
All right, listen, this is, this is the reasoning. This is how this goes. Because a husband's authority is unavoidable, how he exercises it will be either life-giving or suffocating. You, you see that? Because it is an unavoidable authority, you, you have it. You can't get rid of it. God, God put it there. And so the question is how you exercise it. And, and how you exercise it will give life to your wife or it will suffocate your wife. And a Christian husband's authority is to be life-giving. In other words, it is to provide an environment in which your, in which your wife can flourish in her role as a, as a wife and as a mother. You're to exercise your authority in such a way that, that she flourishes. I mean, just think of a simple illustration of a, of a garden when it is tended by a, by a farmer who, who really cares about it and, and is intimately involved in it and works hard at, it, at the field, and, then, and it flourishes and it, and it blooms and it produces, as opposed to the one who neglects it. And it's overgrown with thorns and thistles and, and shriveled plants and, it, and is not productive. One is the result of hard work that, that gives life. The other one's the result of neglect that suffocates and, and brings death. So how? How do we, guys, you know, exercise our authority in a, in a life-giving way? Well, a life-giving authority creates an environment in which your wife is free from worry. Free from worry about you. About your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. About your sexual fidelity. About your integrity. About your work ethic. About your priorities, your commitments to the home and to the family at large. When, when she does not have any concern about that, you have now created the basis of a, of a life-giving environment. Confidence by her about your character, it, it allows her to, to concern herself with her role, her domain, without having to try to shoulder your responsibilities. Verse 28, husbands, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Why? Because we are members of his body. Because she is your body, verse 28 because she is your body, it is, it is natural for you as a husband to care deeply and effectively for her needs. I mean, Paul is just drawing a natural analogy here, and he, and he uses two words here to, to describe the husband's care for his own physical body, and he uses it as a metaphor to, a, to explain how a husband ought to express his love and care for his wife. Right? Verse 29. No one ever hated his own body, but nourishes and cherishes it. Those are your two words, nourish and cherish it, just as Christ also does the church. Now these two words, nourish. This first word, nourish. Ektrefo. It's, uh, it's only used two places in the New Testament, actually, and it's used by Apostle Paul here and one other place in Ephesians, actually, in chapter 6 and verse 4. And the, and the word means to, to nourish or to, or to promote health or strength. And it speaks about, in a, in a general sense, the, the care that parents provide for children. And look in verse 4, that's exactly how it's being used there. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Okay? So nurture would be a better way or another way to say that, okay? The nurture and instruction of the Lord. Now, this, this word nurture is, is broad enough to, to include not just physical issues, but also spiritual and even psychological health. So a husband is, is to, 
care for his wife in an in a encompassing way, in a totality. He's to cherish her. Thalpo is the word. Again, it's only used one other place. And, and there it has the idea of to impart warmth or to, or to foster comfort or, or to even to nurse. It's used by Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. Go ahead and flip over there. Actually, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, Paul brings the two words together, thalpo and, and a cognate word for ektrepho. Uh, uh, he uses the word uh, trophos. It's, it's just it's a related word. And he uses it to speak about uh, his care for the believers there in Thessalonica. And it, and it talks about his compassionate care. Paul says, but we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing, there's, there's a word trophos, as a nursing mother tenderly cares, Thalpo, for her own children. So this idea of, of, a, of a, the care of a, of, a, of a warm, you know, like a mother caring for her children, back to Ephesians 5, Paul says, listen, that's, that's natural to us, how we care for ourselves. We take care of ourselves. We comfort ourselves. We keep ourselves warm. We keep ourselves fed. We do all of these things. And Paul's using this as a metaphor to speak about how we now are to effectively love our wives. Right? Husband ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. So again, Paul wraps it up here and, and says, Christ is the pattern. Think about how Christ cares for the church, how gentle he is, how tender he is, how all-encompassing his care is. That's our model. That's our model. Okay? Our headship is to, is to be a headship that, that imparts life to the relationship. Now, does this mean that a husband can or must provide all of the emotional needs of his wife? She has no need for friends or anything else beyond him? No, that's not what it's saying. But it is saying that this relationship is the primary relationship, gentlemen. And that it is the relationship with your wife that, that should be so natural to you, just like taking care of yourself. Why? Because she is one flesh with you. Right? So this should be the primary relationship. You are to be the primary source of good in your wife's life. Not the exclusive source, but the primary source. A husband's authority is life-giving. Nine. Nine. A husband's authority is convicting. A husband's authority is convicting. Now, we have been looking now for several months, right, at this study of biblical authority and submission. And I have heard from a number of people that this study is generating all kinds of discussion throughout the church. And in that, I rejoice. This is a good thing. This is a good thing. It's good that we wrestle with the Scriptures, and, it, and it's good that we seek to see how the Lord would have us change in these matters. But as a husband, I just have to tell you that the more we think about our roles and our responsibilities, the more we are convicted by the Spirit of God for the shallow nature of our love. We've got a lot of room to grow, all of us. We have got a lot of room to grow. All too often, we use our authority or we neglect our authority to satisfy our own lust for comfort or control. That's just flat, hard truth. We don't love like we ought. And when we think about it, guys, our failures are right before our eyes. Isn't that true? They are right before our eyes. Therefore, we have to acknowledge that. 
We have to acknowledge that reality and not be self-satisfied. Listen, it's a fearful thing for the son of Adam to be placed in authority over others. And we can never grow complacent with our responsibilities, guys. Responsibilities that we were created by God to bear. This teaching is designed to bring conviction. And, and the very reality that as a man in a marriage, you are the head of your wife, that that is an unavoidable reality, that brings conviction. Brings conviction. Thought seriously, there's no room for us to be smug. Just the opposite. It's to think, man, have I got a long way to go. I've got a long way to go. I am not like Christ in these things. But I want to be. I want to be. And that's number 10. A husband's authority is sanctifying. Because it is convicting, it is sanctifying. You want to be like Jesus Christ? Don't get married. You want to be like Jesus Christ? Get married. Right? Sort it out. Sort it out. Because the Spirit convicts us of our shortcomings, we are driven back to Christ. We are driven back to Christ. We have no place to go but Christ. So we confess our shortcomings and our sin to God our Father, and we, and we claim the promise of his forgiveness in Christ, right? Jesus died and, and paid the penalty for my shortcoming, my sin as a husband. It is part of the atonement of Christ. I do not have to pay for these sins myself, but they are sin. And they do fracture fellowship with both God, my Father, and my wife, who is my flesh. We search the scriptures, we learn what it means to love and to lead like Christ. Then we go to God our Father and we, we ask him for courage to change. Oh Lord, you, you know my shortcoming here. Please help me. Please help me to change. And I, and I believe your word is true. Strengthen me in the inner man so that I might begin to live in light of the faith in your word. That you're transforming me, you're changing me. Don't have to live like this. I don't have to live this way. Beloved, this is what sets apart a Christian husband. This is what sets apart a Christian husband. These responsibilities are true of all men for all time because God wired it that way. But what sets the Christian husband apart is that we have a place to go in the midst of our failures for both solace and courage and, and strength to change. So there's great hope in this. There is great, great hope. A husband's authority is sanctifying. It is sanctifying. Well, may the Spirit of God sanctify us this morning as we consider these other characteristics. May it drive us to Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, it is a fearful thing for a son of Adam to be placed in a position of such authority and influence. And every man here, Father, who is honest is well aware of his shortcomings and his failures. There is none of us, O oh Lord, that can be smug can say we have it wired, we've got this nailed. What else you got? For Father, this is nothing less and nothing more than being called to the very image of Christ. 
And it's in that that we can find hope. For we have been predestined before the foundation of the beginning of time to, to be conformed to the image of Christ, to be made like Jesus Christ, Paul tells us in Romans 8. So we can be like Christ in this matter. Oh Lord, may you strengthen us here in the inner man so that our faith would grow strong. That we would, we would work at it. Not in the flesh, not in the power of our own strength or just pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, but, but admitting our weakness and our failures. Finding the forgiveness that is ours in Christ and and then thus not living under a burden of guilt, but living free to, to try again. Father, I pray for my brothers here this morning that you would encourage them this week to think seriously about these things and, and to find success. Oh Lord, might you grant us a, just a measure of success. For my sisters, Father, may you help them. Their, their responsibilities are, are, are weighty as well. May you enable them to fulfill their roles, their responsibilities. And, and Father, may you put it on their hearts to pray for their husbands. For as he succeeds, so goes the family. So goes the marriage, for they are one flesh. And this mystery is profound. Father, there's also the great likelihood here this morning that there's one or more who are outside the family of God who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ savingly. Perhaps they are married or want to be married, and, and they think about their responsibilities and, and they're overwhelmed by it all, and Father, that's a good thing. For as they get a glimpse of their own heart, Father, may they see the darkness there, and may they recognize that they need help. They need a Savior. And that they can become sons of the living God if they will turn to Christ in faith, confess their sin, call out for him to save them. Oh Lord, may you do your mysterious work and save even now. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, beloved, we have one more to finish this part, okay? So come back next week I'll, I'm going to hammer on you guys one more time, okay? But it's, it's because I love you. It's because I love you. God bless you. Go in peace.